This is the way we roll. This is the behind the scenes, Catherine. <laughs> okay, so um, and we start with, you know, of course, making sure that Rachel is ready. So are you ready, Rachel? We're ready. <laughs> okay, welcome to Moyo Nutrition Podcast, where each week we bring you our thoughts and more in-depth discussion on the latest research reviewed in our weekly newsletter. You are joined today by nutrition professors Rachel Brown. Hi, Rachel. Hi there. And myself, Lisa Houghton, who are passionate about keeping you up to date with the latest health research and debunking the bad science amongst the over 20,000 nutrition-related research publications a year. Now, this is episode five, which is the number of the human being, where it symbolizes the four limbs and head that controls the limbs. And I do believe we'll be talking about limbs in this episode. It also represents the five Olympic rings, which nicely aligns with our sports nutrition topic this week. So keeping on that theme, Rachel has not only brought us this somewhat interesting topic in high performance sport, but she's also brought us Associate Professor Catherine Black from the Department of Human Nutrition at the University of Otago. Welcome to the show, KB. Hi there, it's great to be here. I've enjoyed listening to the two of you weekly. Oh, I bet you have. Okay. Now, while Catherine herself is not controversial, the topic at hand has generated some hoopla, Rachel? Yeah, well, it has a bit. So uh, I was really probably somewhat taken with the interesting title of this particular research paper. And part of that title was Come Back, Skin Folds, All is Forgiven. Now, I know you shouldn't really judge a book by its cover or a journal article by its title, but I guess it really did pique our interest given the recent call by the AFL, so that's the Australian Football League, late last year to ban skinfold testing on draft prospects really out of fears that this tool of measuring body composition, uh, they considered a form of body shaming. And also we've seen Swimming Australia has recommended that the organisation actually drop skin folds, acknowledging, and this is quote, um, the practice of assessing body composition is harmful for swimmers, unquote. Okay, so KB, what's going on out there in this controversial area of high performance sport? Well, I think it's the misuse of body composition assessment and their language around it, which is controversial. I think we probably need to start by thinking about why we measure body composition. Firstly, is it necessary? For some sports, for example, cycling, running, where you're moving mass against gravity, and maybe contact sports where we're moving, uh, where force equals mass times velocity, there probably is a, a role there for body composition. And in which case, we'll probably measure body composition um, as one of the performance matrix. But then some sports, um, body composition is really of limited importance um, to um, the athlete. So you have to decide whether you're going to measure body composition. Um, and then even if you're working in a team sport, you need to think about the individual athlete and the situation that they're in before deciding if you are actually going to measure it and how to measure body composition. You also need to understand the reliability, validity, and um, the measurement error of the method that you're going to use and what those findings of those measurements actually mean. It's also important that the athlete and coaches are educated about the limitations of any body composition measures before you take them. 
because as Rachel mentioned, Swimming Australia undertook an internal review into the treatment of girls and women. And as a result of that report, which were highly publicised last month, there was 46 recommendations made, which included the recommendation to drop skin fall testing, which highlights the controversy. Yeah, I saw that um, article in the news and I did note that this particular recommendation was somewhat twofold to drop the skinfold testing. One, it was being challenged that this view that lean body mass predicts performance, or I guess in this case didn't predict for performance. So if it isn't related to performance, why bother testing it? And the second being that concern arising around poor body image when these tests are conducted. Yeah, so for swimming, the link between body composition and performance is possibly limited, especially when you take into account well-being of the athlete. So the report stresses that body composition assessment should only be conducted twice a year unless there is a justified need, and that unjustified routine periodic screening should be discontinued. The second issue is around body image, and this comes back to education about the importance of meeting of body composition measures and the important and importantly, the language used when talking to and about athletes. And that inappropriate language could come from within the team or from fans or the media. And that has happened to some top Australian swimmers. And these comments can be damaging to some athletes. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, what about the AFL, as RB mentioned? Yeah, so the AFL scrapped standard skinfall testing on draft pro prospects after consulting the Australian Institute of Sport. But it should be noted that the Australian Institute, Institute of Sport does not oppose skinfold testing. Uh, it does, however, encourage a testing environment that has a strong consideration for athlete well-being. And well-being is important to consider, especially for young athletes coming into a sport, as we know that the, these young athletes are probably at a greater risk of poor body image. Um, they face a lot of other pressures at this time in their lives and don't have the knowledge of the experienced players and how to put these things into perspective. Therefore, it's likely that improvements in technique, training, and nutrition would result in a great performance benefit than trying to manipulate body composition alone. So I guess really in that just draft process, they have to balance the usefulness of just taking a one-off or a single measurement against the risk of negatively affecting the mental health of those young players, particularly uh, those that actually miss out on getting selected. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really is a matter of understanding the value of the skinfold assessment, ensuring appropriate protocols are in place and of equal importance that the results are framed in a positive way. So I guess, you know, given the, you know, all the controversy that's arisen over this, it does sound like, you know, we're going in the right direction, perhaps. Yeah, and it's gaining traction like Netball Australia only tests skinfolds on its senior netball team. Um, the practice operates on a strict opt-in basis and those who volunteer must be over the age of 18. If they choose to get tested, the results may remain confidential and are not used as a metric, rather they become more of a tool to assess progress. Okay, so netball um, is still testing body composition because I guess before I wanted to progress any further, you did mention KB about um, performance and body composition and Swimming Australia said that, you know, lean mass didn't predict performance. So do, do we care about body composition? Well, I think um, body composition can predict performance in some sports, um, but not all sports. And it probably comes down to the individual and the individual measures of body composition and how they 
track and change over a season and over a career. If we think about weight category sports, body composition could provide a nutritionist with some valuable information um, about an athlete's ability to even make weight and safely compete at the weight category they want to compete at. Um, yeah, and we also need to remember that body composition isn't a stagnant measure. It will fluctuate over a season and, a, and over an athlete's career. Um, and we need to take into account all of these metrics um, to check on an athlete's well-being and performance over the course of their career. Okay, well, I guess the next question is, then when should body fat be monitored in athletes? And should we be using things like skin fold thickness? Or is there something better, Rachel? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And I guess a really nice segue into the paper that we reviewed in the newsletter. Um, there are indeed, of course, uh, a range of different technologies available to measure body composition. And I think that there is debate amongst sports nutritionists um, on the best tool to use in routine practice. W would that be fair to say, KB? Yeah, for sure. And the best method comes back to the situation you're in, who you're working with, a team or an individual, how frequently you're going to take the measures and what you're using the measures for, uh, and of course, the team budget. In team sports, I reckon a lot of sports nutritionists use skin fold thickness as a tool because it's inexpensive, requires minimal equipment, can be used in a number of different field settings. They can also be used to track changes um, in body composition regularly over a period of time. Also has the benefits outside of just providing us a value. Um, it provides that you can provide immediate feedback to the athlete. Uh, and if it's a good nutritionist who's taken them, it allows opportunities to frame that feedback in a positive manner. But before you start taking anyone's skin folds, um, you do need to make sure that you've built a nice rapport with the athlete and that they trust you. Um, and part of that is, is you showing them how you're going to use the, the results and providing feedback or education to the athlete about the values that they get. Yeah, really nice points. And I think the authors of the review claim that many practitioners are using really the most convenient tool rather than maybe critically appraising different methods. So, well, given the title of this paper, did skinfold measurements go out of fashion and now making a comeback? Well, the answer coming out of the review is yes, uh, but we do have to remember that uh, at the moment there is actually no universally accepted measurement method. So we really have to understand all the limitations of the different uh, methods available. And as Catherine mentioned in the recent controversy, we also need to know when these measurements are useful and how to really present them in a positive and I guess useful light. So from this paper, what are the other tools that are currently being used in the field? Well, the paper does a really nice job of summarising quite a few different methods in addition to the skin folds. So it goes into hydrodensitometry, which uh, many of us will know as um, underwater weighing, um, or air displacement plasmography. Uh, some of those people may be familiar with the bod pod, so it's, it's kind of similar principles to underwater weighing, but it's using air. Then there's bioelectrical impedance and spectroscopy, uh, ultrasound, there's three-dimensional scanning, and of course, uh, DEXA scans. 
nice job and all those words, Rachel. <laughs> that, was, that was quite traumatic, that was. <laughs> well, we have linked the research paper in our newsletter, and it is an open access paper for those that want to read more about each one. But I think of particular help, the authors have provided a reference framework to help you choose the best one. Yeah, and this review is really worth a read, not only for those working in sports nutrition, but really anyone interested in body composition. I found that it it provided a really useful overview of the pros and cons of the different methods that we commonly use to assess body composition. And it also did a nice job of outlining those assumptions that are really inherent in, in different techniques. I guess still, you know, the cadaver dissection is the only direct and perhaps most accurate method, but obviously not useful in the field. What about DEXA? Because this, I, I think, has been toted as the gold standard. Yeah, well, of course, DEXA was first developed for the measurement of bone mineral density. And so it has been also used extensively in in other populations and including the athletic population uh, for the assessment of body composition. And really, indeed, DEXA is considered by many in the field as that criterion standard of body composition. But, you know, um, we need to remember that this method is not without its limitations. Uh, So we have to keep that in mind. And also there are some legal and ethical constraints and maybe some technical considerations we have to think about. Yeah, and I guess the growing importance and awareness of low energy availability and the consequence of this on bone mineral content makes DEXA an attractive tool, eh, KB? Yeah, it does, especially for bone mineral content. But as RB said, Um, DEXA does have its limitations. Research has shown that unless strict protocols are followed, then a DEXA can miss changes in body composition amongst athletes over a training block, uh, which could be potentially disappointing for an athlete who thinks they've worked hard and um, gets the DEXA results and there's no change. Uh, And in a real-world setting, having an athlete follow the strict protocols can be very difficult. Um, If you're working with an individual athlete, then it may be possible um, to implement them But working in a team setting, it's probably going to be almost impossible to get your full team to follow these uh, protocols and get DEXA scans. Um, There is a concern um, the level of inter-machine and inter-manufacturer variability, causing issues with athletes who require to travel and may be scanned at different locations. Yeah, and the authors also note that. So even though um, you use the same model of DEXAs, sometimes the results really vary significantly between the hardware and the and the software version. So if you look at table two in the paper, it shows data collected on elite female soccer players assessed on units produced by the same DEXA manufacturer, but using different models. And these measurements were made within weeks of each other. And despite the players reporting that they had the same total body mass, there was actually uh, an 18% increase in fatness and a 4% decrease in lean mass. So that's going to cause issues there. Yeah. And, and so you also mentioned the legal and ethical considerations of DEXA, Rachel. Yeah, well, DEXA does expose athletes and anybody that goes on it um, to low radiation doses. But we do have to put this in perspective. So the effective dose are uh, Um, used in most DEXA systems is actually less exposure than you'd get naturally um, as the average 
background radiation that you would have during the day. So it is quite low. But because there is some um, radiation exposure, there are still legal and ethical constraints surrounding the dose of radiation admitted from the DEXA. That's for both the athlete and the operator. And really, despite being relatively minimal compared to other radiographic devices, it is a factor that you have to consider, and especially, I guess, for pregnant athletes. Yeah, that's true. There are some tricky situations, like with taller or wider athletes, such as rugby players, who can't always fit within the 195-centimetre scanning area. And so, as a result, the results can change. Yeah, that's right. And, and DEXA may fail to accurately assess the athletes who are often considered, you know, within the extremes of physiology, such as, as you said, the really tall ones or extremely muscular athletes. So I guess those tall ones, you've got to decide whether you miss out the feet or the, the head, don't you? So <laughs> it makes things a little bit um, complicated. And uh, given that many sports teams often set arbitrary or non-discriminatory body fat percentage targets for athletes, uh, that can be a problem. So like, what is typical KB? Yeah, I don't think it's fair to say many set arbitrary values. I think, like with everything, there are good and bad teams. The bad teams maybe set arbitrary values and probably place too much emphasis on body composition anyway. I mean, you hear horror stories about not just body composition, but even simple measures of weight being used completely inappropriately in athletic settings. I mean, you just have to read the Mary McCain story um, about her being weighed before races and comments about her being heavy and how that has affected her. Um, our stories of athletes being fine because their body fat um, percent goal was 10%. And if they're at 10.1%, they get a fine, but 9.9% is fine. Yet we know that that difference is likely um, within the measurement area of most um, measurements. However, there are some also some good teams who will use uh, all the data available, including wellness measures, a performance matrix and athlete history to determine a skin fold or body composition range uh, and use that as um, and use the body composition only as one of many measures to influence performance uh, and to use all of that information to set a, a body composition goal and to really focus on the well-being and performance of the athlete. So it is a case of putting these measures into perspective um, and everyone, make sure everyone is on the same page about their meaning. Well, if we if we even just go back to the DEXA, would sports teams even own their own DEXA? Nah, DEXAs are pretty expensive. Um, and usually if you want to get a DEXA, um, it means visiting a local university, which poses challenges to um, the standardization of the, of the protocols required for a DEXA scan. Yeah, and I guess another key consideration is the effect of muscle glycogen on that reliability of the DEXA uh, body composition measures because we know it's common practice for certain athletes to periodise their carbohydrate intake, so commencing some training sessions with low and often competing with high muscle glycogen, um, utilising that fuel for work required concept. So we know that glycogen depletion will significantly really affect those DEXA results. And we've seen that um, with a 2.5% increase in lean body mass when your glycogen is really super compensated. So this could have really major implications for athletes who may feel that they've lost uh, lean mass when in reality, they may have simply been glycogen depleted due to their training. 
Yeah, and there's other factors to consider too, including the use of supplements such as creatine, time of day of measures, hydration status, and previous exercise activity. So you really do need careful planning um, for the use of DEXA to give the best possibility of reproducibility uh, in the data, um, which from an applied perspective is often difficult to control on a regular basis. Okay, so maybe not the perfect tool of that gold standard, but it's obviously crucial that sports nutritionists and coaches are aware of these limitations and the tools and and imperative that they ensure they standardize their practices and pick the right tools. So what about the skin fold as a measurement tool, Rachel? Yeah, well, again, there's a number of technical limitations that we have to consider like all other techniques when when employing this method and so um, initially there's an assumption of constant skin thickness for example and compressibility and that double fold that you take at, at different measurement sites um, it's also affected by the grip of the practitioner and the applied pressure of the calipers and it can differ as um, athletes um, by age sex and also skin temperature but the the positive thing about skin fold assessment is that it's really less affected by those everyday activities that we just talked about that is affected with other methods such as DEXA. So, you know, recent ingestion of a meal or changes in hydration status or glycogen status, this tends to be less affected by. Yeah, and the experience of the anthropometrist is crucial in obtaining accurate skin fold data. And you want to keep that data as raw data, as in the sum of eight, rather than converting it to a percent body fat. And it's usually the inexperienced athletes or coaches who will ask about converting these values. And it is important to explain why this is inappropriate um, to them and what they should be thinking about in terms of skin fold thickness and the limitations of these measures. You also have to be careful to explain to them the differences between different measurers, especially if an athlete is playing for multiple teams, say a, a club team and a rep team, um, and then they're being measured in different settings and that they understand that differences between two measurers could be just due to their differences in error between the two measurers rather than an actual change in body composition. You've also got to remember that even with an ISAC accredited practitioner, it's not uncommon to see large discrepancies in assessment outcomes, particularly in larger athletes, which can create issues when multiple testers perform the measures across a groups of individuals. Yeah, and I guess one of the key issues when using the skin fold thicknesses in an applied setting, as you said, is that desire for fat mass measurements to be reported as percent body fat, which adds that layer of complexity that you've just talked about. And I guess one of the big conundrums of this is the regression equations used for that. And there's actually currently, you know, over 100 of these to estimate body fat from your skin folds. And so uh, we also know that these... Uh, regression equations really haven't been validated when you're trying to track that regular changes in body composition. And the formulas are also established across different populations using different protocols with deviations in the sites that they measured and often have that intra-practitioner um, error that you talked about before and the criterion um, variability and, and those reliability issues. And the authors uh, demonstrate this problem quite nicely um, with the use of the different equations on the same set of in individual data um, 
producing quite big differences. So they took data from a Caucasian male soccer player and um, depending on which equation you'd use, your body fat, the body fat actually ranged from 4 to 8%. So that's really quite a big difference. Yeah, so it sounds like we shouldn't even bother determining body fat percentage. Yeah, agreed. And the authors are right with you there, um, where they've really discouraged the conversion of the skin fold thickness into a percentage body fat and really recommended, like Catherine has, that the data be represented as the sum of the eight skin folds. And so summing those um, skin fold sites will provide a much more accurate and reliable outcome of body composition assessment. Yeah, indeed, the sum of uh, skin fold thickness has a high degree of agreement with whole body dexa measures. And as you said, KB, the problem is some coaches and athletes are not familiar with being given data as that uh, kind of sum of those skin fold sites, so a measurement kind of in millimeters, and often still request, uh, I think, probably the body fat percentage results. And is there, uh, you know, data really? So is it quite limited in terms of the reference data of those eight skinfold measures in athletes? And as a result, coaches can be somewhat confused when presented with some of this information. Yeah, and the authors do try and help here by presenting a set of normative data taken from applied practitioners working in the field, which they might um, which they really believe might help address this problem. And if you look at the paper, um, Table 5 is really useful for this. Yeah, and it's important that even with normative data that we remember athletes are individuals and they may not fit the normative data. So you do need to know your athlete um, and what is effective for that athlete rather than just comparing them to the norms. I mean, if we look at um, two successful strikers for Manchester United, Wayne Rooney and Cristiano Ronaldo. I haven't seen their skinfold data, but I would imagine that they were probably quite different. Um, and we've also got to remember, even amongst Isaac accredited practitioners, it's not uncommon to see the sum of four, seven, or eight sites reported. And this can cause confusion and make it difficult to compare data. Okay, so it sounds like the field should or is moving away from these percentage values then it is important that a widely accepted methodology is adopted. Yeah, we need to highly promote the standard Isaac sum of eight sites. And well, that nicely allows us to highly promote our best practice section in our newsletter where you can learn more about that international um, anthropometry accreditation scheme um, led by Isaac. Any final words from you, RB? Yeah, I probably just using the standard Isaac methods um, are useful in a lot of settings, such as the sports session settings, but not feasible um, to use this protocol in all situations. And I guess a good example of this is in our global nutrition household survey work, which we've done in low and middle income countries, where we can compare the measurements to publish growth standards. And in this case, we really need to use the same protocols that were used to develop the reference data. And these protocols can really 
vary quite substantially from the Isaac methods. And in terms of the measurement site, even the length of time you hold the skin fold before reading um, is recorded, and even the recommended side of the body. So sometimes it's actually the left side of the body that's recommended, um, and Isaac's usually the right side. So there's really been many a times where I actually have to stop myself and think, you know, gosh, which is left and right, which I have problems with anyway. <laughs> and also, you know, do I pick up the skin fold on the actual mark like you do in the Isaac style or do I pick it up around about two centimetres above the mark like the Enhane style? So, you know, these are problems that we have to um, think about. So... But having said that, I think the general principles are the same when you're taking skin folds. And so if you're well-trained in Isaac, uh, then I think you have the skills to really easily adapt to the requirements of the different protocols. Yeah, really good point. Anyways, interesting topic. Skinfold has made its way back into fashion. And I'm really thankful that Catherine has been able to join us. Well, that's it for our episode today. We want to thank everyone for listening. And all of our discussion and study links can be found in our weekly newsletter, which is free to anyone who wants to subscribe. You can uh, sign up at our Twitter or Instagram accounts at Moyo Nutrition. And to keep up to date, make sure you follow us here. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please consider sharing us around. And we'll be back next week. But we'll be talking about what, Rachel? Well, last week, Michael Mosley was on a popular news show promoting ways to lose weight as the so-called expert. Um, and what it really was, was a way of promoting his new diet book. So I thought we'd maybe take a bit of a deep dive into some of the claims he made on that show. Yeah, it sounds like a Rachel rant to me. Mm, it is a little bit of a rant. So um, hold on to your hats, people. <laughs> well, great. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Did you like that, Catherine? Yeah, no, that was good. Yeah, yeah. You gonna listen to this one? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm like you. I think I've listened to one, and I'm too scared to listen to any more. <laughs> I've got to listen over and over and over. <laughs>